0: Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter four, as we finish out this chapter and begin the fifth, beginning and re- begin reading with me in verse thirty-two. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, as we go through this book of Acts, Luke, throughout it, gives summary accounts of what has taken place. He did so in the end of chapter 2 and does so in our passage this morning. And what Luke wants you to understand and wants you not to miss is that everything that is happening is happening in the context of the church. He does not want you to believe that as great as Peter and John and the rest of the apostles were that they were doing this as lone rangers. No, they were acting and doing this for the greater work of the church. The church is the chosen vessel of advancing the kingdom of God throughout the earth. That is not only true then, that is true now. And so if you read the book of Acts and think that the church is kind of a take it or leave it proposition, then you have not read the book of Acts. In fact, Luke puts the church as primary to the gospel message. In fact, we would go as far as to say that the fruit of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was the church, the true church, the visible church on earth. If you need a proof of the resurrection then I give you no better proof than the gathered church of the Lord Jesus Christ that meets day by day, Lord's day by Lord's day. Why else would we be gathered here this morning? What other reason would we need or have? We surely don't gather because of our wonderful accommodations. We surely don't gather because... We have everything put together. We surely don't gather to hear this guy's stories or really bad jokes. No, we gather together because we have been changed. We have been given new life through the resurrection of Christ. We've gone from death unto life, and we can do no other than to gather and to worship. And what a true blessing that is. And that is why we are to be a part of the visible church. I tell visitors and those that are in the new members class, we have a new members class that's ongoing right now. I tell them that you need to be a part of the church. If this church, great. But if not this church, then another church. Because believers, true Christians, are to be committed to the church. We as Christians should never date The church. You know what I mean by that? That we just kind of date this church and then date that church and then date another church. No, we are to marry the church. We're to take vows to the church. And unless that church, that particular church, is no longer faithful to Christ or to the scriptures, then we should not break those vows for any other reason. We should. Keep our vows. We should keep our marriage to the church. And this morning, in this passage, Luke lays out the tremendous blessings of being a part of the church, the body of Christ. You see, people too often think wrongly that Christianity is just mere fire insurance or a ticket to heaven. In other words, that all the blessings are kind of in the future. I tell you, that is a faulty view of God. It's a faulty view of Christianity. Yes, there are many great and amazing blessings ahead of us. So much so that the scriptures say that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, or God has prepared for us. But that doesn't mean that there aren't blessings now. No, there's many blessings right now, that we as a church, you as Christians, are to enjoy. Isaac Watts, great hymn writer of the 18th century, portrays it rightly in some of the best hymn lines that were ever written when he writes, The men of grace have found glory below. Celestial fruits on earthly ground from faith and hope may grow. Goes on to say, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. And then he goes on to say, So let our song abound, every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground to fairer worlds on high. Those are rich words. Do you hear what Watts is saying? This is Emmanuel's land. Not then. Now and therefore, there is blessings to be had in the here and now, and we are to enter into them. Well, Acts chapter 4 tells us of several of those blessings that we have as a church, and then in Acts chapter 5, we see what prevents us from having these blessings, and what prevents us is ourselves our pride, our sin, putting ourselves first rather than God and others. And we see this powerful example through Ananias and Sapphira. And so as we turn to these blessings, we want to understand them. We want to understand why it is that God would have us to have and to fight against this selfishness and fight against this greed And so we'll see that this morning in two points, the blessing of selflessness, and then second, the curse of selfishness. First, the the blessing of selflessness. Turn to the end of Acts chapter 4, if you're not there already, and we see at the very end of verse 32, this phrase, they had everything in common. Luke here is talking about the church, the full number of those that believed at that time. And he says that they had everything in common. Now the Greek word there is koine. That might sound very familiar to you. It's the root from which we get the word koinonia, or fellowship. And so they are saying that they had everything in common. They were enjoying true fellowship. Now fellowship is one of those well-worn and oftentimes maligned Christian words. Most, when they hear the word fellowship or hear the word even koinia, they think that means Greek for coffee and donuts, right? That's what most people think. That fellowship means coffee and donuts. That's what fellowship has been reduced to. Now, i Enjoy coffee and I enjoy donuts. Don't get me wrong. And the deacons do a great job at that. But if that is all that we think of when we think of fellowship, our definition, our idea of fellowship needs to expand. And I tell you, here in Acts chapter 4, we have this true sense of fellowship. And he says in verse 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There you have it, don't you? They're of one heart and one soul. You could even say they're of one mind, that they had this unity together. And why is that? Why is it that they were unified as one? Because they were unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where true unity lies. That's what Connects us together because we are all different parts of the body, but we are all connected to the same head, the Lord. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Be eager, that could be translated, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You hear what he's saying? Do everything you can to maintain the unity. Why is that? Well, he goes on to say, because there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying we can have unity because we have oneness. And he gives, in fact, seven reasons why there ought to be unity in the church. And did you notice as we went through all of them that all of them were vertical? None of them were horizontal, meaning that we have unity because we are unified here first and foremost. We're unified with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and because we're unified here, therefore we can be unified here with one another. Notice he does not say that we have unity because we're all of the same race, or because we're all of the same age, or because we vote the same, or have the same interests, or root for the same football team. No, none of that matters. That is why when people ask me, hey, is Smyrna Prez a, a white church? I say no. Is it a black church? No. Is it a Republican church? No. A Democrat church? No. Is it a Southern church or a country club church? No. Is it a traditional church, a modern church? No. Is it an organ church, a guitar church? No. Is it a mass church, a non-mass church? No. Is it a vaccine church, a non-vaccine church? No, it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what we're identified by and must be. Because Paul says we are of one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. If we identify by all of those other things, then we're identifying by something far less and far inferior to the greater glory, which is Christ. To understand that's where we have unity in a world that is so divided and divisive that ought not be brought into the church. The world ought to see the church unified. And if it does not and will not, then they will not see the body of Christ functioning as it ought. This is where all koinea stems from, stems from our unity in Christ. And therefore, I don't care if you're white or black or red or brown or comb your hair in a certain way. It's the fact that you love Jesus, that's what you need to know about one another. Have you given your life to him? If so, then we can have fellowship because all those other things are secondary and far less. Augustine, one of the fathers of the early church, had a good Christian friend named Olympus, and they had a sharp disagreement And they left at odds with one another. But this bothered Augustine tremendously, so much so that that he could not sleep. And so instead of waiting for morning, he just got up and went to the home of his friend Olympus and, and pounded on the door until Olympus woke up. And he said, we must be unified. We must be reconciled together. We must not be divided. And he gives the clinching reason. He says, Because we were washed in the same blood. Augustine understood it, didn't he? He got it. Because we have unity here. We have unity with one another. And that is the true aspect of fellowship. Well, it goes on in verse 33. It says that they, with great power, were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were connected to the same Lord, and they were connected to the same ministry, we would say. That they were witnessing, that they were speaking forth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must find this passage almost comical in some ways, because what was it that earlier in the chapter that the the leaders of that day told them not to do? Well, you can read it in verse 17. They said that they must spread no further this name, And so let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Fast forward, you go to verse 33. And what does it say that they were doing? They were speaking of Jesus in this name. They were speaking, in fact, boldly with great power. In other words, they were told not to do this. And they say, not only will we not do it, we're going to do it more. We're going to do it with great power. We're going to do it with great boldness. We're going to do it with more earnesty and earnestness. And we are called to do the same, aren't we? We have fellowship because we are fellowshipping in the same ministry. That we are giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, the apostles could give eyewitness testimony. We're not able to do that, but we are able to give testimony of Christ living in us, that we were once dead in our sins, in our transgressions, and now we've been made alive with Christ. That is our testimony. And that testimony in and of itself is very dramatic, that we've gone from death to life, no matter when that took place in your life. If that was at age four or at the age of 40, we have a testimony to give of what Christ has done in us. And so, do you see that the early church was connected? They were fellowshipping in the fact that they were connected to the same work and mission, seeing others know the name of Christ. But it goes on, it says, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. You see that they were also fellowshipping by caring for one another. It says that there were not a needy person among them. Why? Because the body of Christ was caring for its own. And we're giving to each other with great generosity, as it says, they were selling lands and homes and giving the proceeds as any had need. Now, some have tried to take these verses and tried to pose some type of Christian communism, where we are to give up all ownership and all private belongings so that everything can be held in common. And some have even tried to, to argue communism principles from this passage. But notice that's not what is being said. Notice that this giving comes out of willingness, comes out of generosity. It does not come out of government mandates. Communism is always dictated upon you. And ultimately it comes out of envy for those that have more. No, this is communal communal giving. It comes out of care. It comes out of a cheerful giver that they are willing to give of this, not because they had to give of this. This comes from the spirit of God. I would say communism comes from the devil himself. And Christians did not do this because they had to, because they wanted to. Why? Because they had fellowship together. They were caring for brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is one of the great blessings that we get to engage in as a church, helping one another in times of need, that we do not bear these burdens alone, but that we carry them collectively, that we laugh with those that laugh, but we also weep with those that weep, and not only weep with them, but but try to carry and ease some of their burdens into the Service today, as we do on many communion services, we will have deacons standing at the door. And you can give to the deacons fund. Now, the deacons fund is not a fund for the deacons or for the deacons to have fun. No, it's to give to those that are in need, brothers and sisters in Christ, and help in a tangible way. Now, do you have to give? No. And even if you do give, do you always know where that money is going to or who it's helping? No, because as you can understand, there's rightly needed confidentiality. But I tell you what, you may not know, but the Lord knows. And the people that are helped know that their church loves them and cares for them and that their Lord loves them and cares for them, that the blessings of the Lord are shown through one another. And so what a blessing to give. That's what the scriptures say. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we see all of this, this expanded idea of fellowship, that they're engaging in the same faith, in the same worship, that they were engaging in the same ministry, in the same fellowship, in the same care, both outwardly and inwardly. I tell you, this is so important. Why? Because this keeps the church on task. It keeps it on mission. I know churches, and so do you, that are deeply divided. And I tell you, almost 99.9% it's because they have stopped pursuing either one or more of these things. And as a result, it's turned to infighting and division and sins. And so Smyrna Presbyterian Church, if you love the fellowship. If you love the bond of peace, if you love the family camaraderie as brothers and sisters in Christ, then keep pursuing these things. That's why we have this mission statement. It's not just a a mission statement, a purpose statement, just to to have fancy words on the backside of the bulletin. No, we want to know Christ and to, to love him and grow in that knowledge with one another and to show forth that love both outside of these walls as well as inside of these walls keeps us on task, keeps us on mission. And notice what takes place. It says at the very end of verse 33, it says, great grace was upon them all. When the church is functioning in this way, the Lord's blessing is upon that place. The favor of the Lord is poured out. And you can have that in no other place than in the church. And why would we want to forego that? Do we not want the grace of God? Do we not want the blessing of God? Do we not want the, the favor of God? It happens when the church functions in this true sense of koinonia. It happens when one another are looking not to our own needs but to the needs of each other. It happens when you have this blessing of selflessness Because we are joining in with something much bigger and greater than us. It's putting others before ourselves. And I tell you what, that goes against our nature, doesn't it? It goes against our selfishness. Because when we come out of the womb, we come out selfish. If you don't think so, let me take you on a tour down to the nursery you'll see very quickly that children are not saying, here, have this toy. No, they're saying, mine. They don't know many words, but they know that word. Very early, don't they? And that is true of us. And that's not just true of children. It's true of adults as well. I went to the gym this week, and I saw that a lady had a sweatshirt on that said, put yourself first. And I thought, Wow. That's, uh, I thought we were a little more subtle than that, but I guess not. That is the spirit of the age though, isn't it? Put yourself first, but that goes against Acts chapter 4, doesn't it? We put God and we put others before ourselves. We're to love them before ourselves. Well, the end of chapter 4 gives a, a wonderful example of this. This man named Joseph, but you don't know him by the name Joseph because he was, given a nickname, and that of Barnabas. And what a great nickname, because it means son of encouragement. And we will meet and know more about Barnabas later in this book. But Barnabas lived in such a way that Luke described here. And one of the ways was not only was he united to Christ and not united with one another, but he gave generously. It says that he sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet, which I think was euphemistic. I don't think it was literally at their feet. I think it means under their leadership. It was given under the the direction of the apostles. Barnabas was connected. He had this true fellowship with Christ and one another. But sadly, we see the opposite as well, don't we? That with every blessing of God, there's a Sinful counter. At every work of God, there's also a work of the evil one. And with the blessing of selflessness comes what we see in our second point, the curse of selfishness. In complete contrast to Barnabas, we see Ananias and Sapphira. This really is a tragic story. It's tragic because of their sin. They did something similar to Barnabas. They sold their property. But unlike Barnabas, they held some of it back. Now, some say it's because they did not give all of it. This was the reason that they were judged. I think that goes back to that Christian communism view again, that if you have anything of your own, it's bad or evil. Again, I don't think that's what they were particularly being judged for in this passage. It was not because they held some back but rather it was because they said that they had given it all or that they were giving it all when in reality they were only giving a portion and holding some of it back. And I think you see that in two ways here when Peter rebukes Ananias. First of all, he says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. You see it's the sin of lying here. And this goes on in the end of verse 4 when he says, You have not lied to man, but to God. But even more than that, I think you see here in verse 4, it says, "Why it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Peter's saying, You, first of all, didn't have to sell it. But even when you did sell it, you did not have to give it all. You could have only given a part, but you cannot say that you gave it all when in reality you only gave a part. Now, the question might be, why would they do this? What would they have to gain? Why did they conspire together, both husband and wife, in such a sin as this? Now, this is, only partially speculation, and I say it as such. Can't ever know the hearts of others. But I think there was some jealousy. I think they were jealous of Barnabas. And that's why I think Luke has this example of Barnabas and then goes immediately into the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I believe it is because Barnabas might have been one of those larger-than-life individuals. He might have had some notoriety in the church and with the apostles, no doubt he was very likable. How do we know that? Because he was called the son of encouragement. Who wouldn't like to be around somebody that is encouraging? And so, could it have been Ananias wanted to be like Barnabas, meaning to do what he does so as to get what he has. And that's how he saw Barnabas. I want to have what he has. But for Ananias, that cost was too much. He had greed, selfishness, and he wanted to receive this, but in a way, shortcut it. So he came up with this scheme. And what is amazing is that he even told his wife, and his wife entered into that scheme. On a good marriage, Pharaoh should have said, the Lord rebuke you, Ananias, What are you thinking? Don't lie. Do not deceive. Instead, she goes along with it. By the way, God bless a spouse that calls you out in your sin. Unless that spouse is my spouse. (laughs) I need it too. And we all need it, even though we don't like it, even though we don't enjoy it. But in a good marriage, we want one another to be more holy more Christlike, And so a good spouse calls us out when we are in sin or thinking in a wrong way. But in this case, Sapphira did not do that to Ananias. And so they entered into this form of hypocrisy to appear something that they were not, to gain that which they did not deserve. And they were willing to do it at the means of deception, and the means of, Lying and really with greed. And you see how this is the complete opposite of what Luke lays out at the end of chapter four. It's selfishness instead of selflessness. It's charity for the sake of gaining, not giving. It's like when those companies give to charities, but they do it on those giant checks, right? so that everyone can see who's giving and how much is being given. Jesus warned against such type of giving, didn't he? He says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. See, that's the heart of it, wasn't it? Ananias and Sapphira wanted to be praised by others, perhaps even be praised by Peter himself, and they were willing to lie to gain it, but the Lord will never be a pawn in someone's selfish self-promotion. And as a result, it cost Ananias his life and later Sapphira. And you see why these two passages go together, that the church is called towards Upreach and to outreach as well as to inreach towards one another, but it's never called to selfishly reach towards self and to grab what you can gain for yourself. And as a result, they were judged. The Lord implemented strict church discipline in demanding of them their very lives. And I know what you're thinking. Because it's what I think oftentimes when I read this passage. I think, Pastor, is, 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 is this uh, harsh? Is the Lord going over the top here? I understand what they did was wrong, but it really cost their life. Well, first of all, the Lord is always just. Job 34 says, Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. We never need worry about that. But I think the stark reality, that which shakes us to our core, is that we see the sins of greed and hypocrisy and selfishness and self-promotion, and we can't help but think, that looks awfully a lot like me and my own sin. And it makes me question and wonder, do my sins deserve death? And I tell you that they not only deserve death, but they deserve much more than that. They deserve damnation, that the wages of sin is death, and then to face judgment. And so as we read this story of Ananias and Sapphira, should we have fear in our hearts? Yes, and that's exactly what happened in the early church was that they had this right sense of fear of God's holiness. But it shouldn't stop there. Yes, we should have fear. We should remember who it is Whose face we live before every single day, but it should also have us understand not only fear, but the depths of the grace of God? Yes, Romans 6:23 says, "For the wages of sin is death." But praise God that that verse doesn't stop there. It says, "The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." Do you understand? What a beautiful gift eternal life truly is. Do you truly understand what your sins deserve? Every sin, the moment you sin, God would be right and just in snapping your life, taking your breath, having it be your last. But Yet so often he doesn't. Why? Because God is gracious and God is good and God has given us the Lord Jesus Christ And so we shouldn't continue in sin, so grace may abound, may it never be so, Paul says, but we should rather live in, in gratitude and praise and, yes, in obedience to our God. Well, as we approach the table, this passage reminds me of two parables that Jesus told. One was which this man found a treasure in the field, and it says that he sold everything that he could Sell so as to gain that field in particular, to gain that treasure. But Jesus tells of another parable, doesn't he? A much more tragic one of a rich fool who stored up for himself only to be told, you fool, this night your very soul be demanded of you. See, Ananias and Sapphira were the latter. They stored up for themselves, selfishly. But Barnabas was the former. He gave selflessly. Why? Because he treasured Christ more than anything, more than any of the earthly treasures, even more than gaining this wonderful profit from this land. Rather, he sold it all so as to give because he treasured Christ. As we come to the table, that is truly the difference, isn't it? The difference is Christ. Is he truly your treasure? See, if the world is your treasure, then you'll try to store it all up. You'll try to gain as much as you can gain. But the tragedy is in the end, you'll be able to keep none of it. See, if Christ is your treasure, you're willing to give it all up so as to gain him. Because in him, you've gained it all. And not only have you gained it all, but you'll never lose it. You'll have it for all eternity. As we come to the table this morning, let us come with that attitude that Christ truly is our treasure. And if he is, then we can truly live selflessly for Christ as well as for one another. Amen.